Well, hello and good afternoon from Tyler, Texas on this uh, very warm August the 6th. And I can't say that date without wishing a very beautiful, lovely princess diva by the name of Ella Mae Ree Tyndall a happy, happy birthday. Yep, it's our granddaughter's eighth birthday today and she is, I'm sure, just having a great time in Rockville, Maryland, near Washington, D.C. So happy birthday to my beautiful little princess, Ella Mae. Gammy and Papa love you so very much and hope that you're just having a splendid birthday uh, and uh, uh, lots and lots of fun, fun things happening for you today. Um, we are in our act study. Yes, I know it's 3 o'clock and not 4 o'clock, but remember we moved the time up a little bit, so if you're just now watching this, and it's four o'clock and you're watching the recording. I am so sorry about that, but I hope that that'll be okay. And feel free to watch through this because it's just a, a wonderful opportunity for us to meet together and study God's word together uh, in spite of the fact that we can't really meet for Bible class. So we're doing a lot of extra classes. Our ministers here at West Irwin Church of Christ, I know others are as well. Uh, we have uh, Bible classes that meet on Sunday afternoons via Zoom. We have Bible classes that meet on Wednesday nights via Zoom. I'm doing a Facebook study, this study on Acts on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons at four o'clock. And then I'm also doing a study on the book of Philippians, Finding Joy in Difficult Times that we just started last Sunday. And that's going to be on Sunday afternoons at 4 p.m. Uh, and uh, so it's there's a lot going on and uh, I hope that you're taking advantage of these things, and I hope that you're continuing to, um, uh, to pray, uh, to pray to our great God for our land, our country, our leaders, uh, this election year, uh, for our communities, for um, all of our citizens, for law enforcement and military and others who have a special role to play in very difficult times. Our medical workers continue this um, novel coronavirus that uh, still is um, uh, causing us to uh, hold back on a lot of things that we love to do for the sake of our neighbor and for the sake of our, our own safety and security. So I just pray that uh, you will continue to pray and join me in that and ask uh, God's healing presence and blessing. I already see a few that are joining us, uh, my dear friends, Lenny and Joe are here, and I uh, love seeing you guys. Larry and Lynn Murphy are here as well. Uh, my wonderful cousin, Gail, uh, married to my great cousin, Keith Allen. Uh, I think the youngest of our generation of, of cousins. Um, his brother, Tracy Dean, and I are probably next in line, but Keith Allen is the one that's probably the youngest of the group. So welcome, Gail. So wonderful to see you. and. Uh, to have that deep connection that we have as family and others, Father, that, uh, that we share our Heavenly Father with through uh, our Creator. I remember a line that someone once said, they were, I believe it was Richard Rogers, the late great Richard Rogers, uh, Bible school teacher, someone that he was calling this person brother and that person brother, and someone asked him and said, how do you know that they're your brother? How do you know that they're, uh, that they're even a Christian or faithful or anything? And he just said, well, you know, the ones I miss in Christ, I catch in Adam. So <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, we, uh, we all come from that, that particular uh, tree. And uh, so it's, uh, it's great to be in relationship 
uh, with others and to have fellowship with others. Our study on Sunday afternoons at 4 p.m. right here on this Facebook page, 4 p.m. Central Time uh, from Philippians. This Sunday will be in Philippians 1 and uh, verses 3 through 11 specifically where Paul talks about that fellowship and that relationship and that partnership in ministry and the gospel that he had uh, with the uh, church at Philippi. So I hope that you'll, uh, you'll be able to take part in that. And if you can't watch it at 4 o'clock, the classes are going to be about 30 minutes, unlike these act studies, which have been closer to an hour. Uh, but um, those are about 30 minutes, and that'll give you plenty of time to be ready for the Zoom classes or some other activities that you might have. Uh, that begin a little bit later on Sunday Sunday evening. Uh, this past uh, Tuesday, as we looked at Acts chapter 22, we read Luke's account of Paul defending himself um, as he was being uh, questioned by the Jewish leaders, uh, and now, as we'll see today, by the Roman leaders as well, um, about why he was uh, doing this, why he, what his story was, why do these Jewish people, uh, are, are they hating you so much and trying to, to make your life so miserable, as we'll see today, even trying to kill you. Um, and, uh, and Paul, in, in Acts 22, he basically just tells his story. He, he uh, talks to those Jews around, them, around him in their native language, and he just shares with them what his story is. And this past Tuesday, I shared with you my story as well, telling the story by telling our story, your story, my story. And I hope that if you didn't get a chance to hear that, that you would uh, go back and listen to that uh, towards the end. I share my story as well as Paul's story as he shared it. And I hope that it gives you encouragement to be able to, uh, to share your own because that is a great window that people can have and look into what Jesus can do um, in their life because of what um, they have seen him doing in yours. It's a great, great uh, blessing uh, to be a part of that. So today, as we look at Acts 23, we kind of think back on, on chapter 22 and that great uh, moment where Paul tells his story. But unfortunately, even though he is defending himself and he is very uh, uh, genuine and sincere in why he's doing what he's doing, still committed to helping the poor, still committed to being a good citizen as much as he can, uh, still committed actually, as we have seen, to um, being a, a part of the Jewish culture, uh, participating in a vow, uh, continuing to meet with those who would have him, uh, allow him to meet with them on the Sabbath. Um, but his primary allegiance is now to Jesus Christ. And because of that, um, the Jews are not much interested in hearing what he has to say. They'll listen up to a point, but then when he says something like he did in, um, uh, in Acts chapter 22, uh, when he, he, re he tells them that as, as this story goes of his meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, interacting with the disciple Ananias in the city, uh, being baptized after praying and fasting for three days and washing his sins away, Acts 22, verse 16, he goes to the Jews and they reject him. And so uh, he tells them that the Lord had told him that he would send him far away to the Gentiles. And as soon as he mentions opening up uh, the kingdom to the Gentiles, that's when his Jewish enemies really just uh, kick up the dust and, and don't want any part of him. Rid the earth of him, they say. This man is not fit to live. So unfortunately, uh, though his story is great and genuine and true, 
uh, he, uh, he sees his situation get even worse. And so in Acts chapter 22, the last verse of that chapter, verse 30, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand uh, before them. So after this initial hearing and, and uh, the threats uh, and the beatings that, that Paul is undertaking and about to undertake more of, the commander learns that he's a Roman citizen and the commander learns that uh, he was born a citizen and is from a very significant city, Tarsus in Cilicia. And so uh, the commander says, whoa, 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 let's hold on a minute. Let's think this through. Let's try to figure this out. Um, so now he's released him rather than had him flogged and told him, look, uh, kind of releasing him on his own recognizance. And he tells him, look, you, let's all gather, gather tomorrow, and I want to hear, hear this story. I want to hear why, um, why we are where we are. Um, and so that's, uh, that's what happens. And so then we turn to, uh, to chapter 23. And it's a, a very interesting chapter, and it begins with a nice diversion. Paul is a smart, smart guy. He's a learned man. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And, uh, and uh, he knows the Jews very well, as well as anyone. He knows the Sadducees and the Pharisees and uh, each sect of the Jews. Um, and he knows their differences. And he's going to rely on that knowledge and those differences uh, to actually help his cause here in chapter 23. That begins with a nice diversion and it centers around the topic of whether or not there truly is a resurrection. Um, so we'll read beginning in verse 1. Paul, Acts 23, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And, and he truly believed that. He truly believed that. Uh, he mentions that and he tells his story in 1 Timothy 1. Uh, calling himself the chief of sinners, yet recognizing that everything he did, he did uh, from a heart that, that thought, at least, he was doing the will of God. Uh, just as we have seen, Jesus told his disciples before his own death that one day people will make you suffer and will punish you and beat you and even put, try to put you to death, thinking that they are serving God by doing that. It's a horrible, horrible thing. Um, and, and so Paul says, look, you know, as he, as he is talking to his own people, the Jews, he tells them in the presence of the Roman authorities, he tells them, look, everything I've done, I've done genuinely and sincerely, right up even to today. Um, that doesn't sit too well with them, though. Verse 2, at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. You know, you, you think of Jesus and you think of the Apostle Paul and you hear them talking about being a servant and you hear them saying, look, go the second mile. Jesus says, uh, Paul says, I'm going to be all things to all people so that I can possibly save some in some way or another. And, and you, don't want to um, you don't want to confuse meekness with weakness. Jesus was far from weak. He was the strongest person that has ever lived. Uh, he had such great self-control and such great inner security. That great passage in John 13 when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, 
including Judas Iscariot, who would within hours betray him to his death. Uh, John tells us at the beginning of John 13 why Jesus could do such a thing, and, it, and it's because Jesus knew who he was, he knew where he had come from, and he knew where he was going. And when you know those things, then you can take a lot of heat that maybe you don't even deserve. That was the Jesus, and that was Paul as well. But that doesn't mean that they just sat around and took everything. They stood their ground. And in this chapter, Paul stands his ground. Uh, the high priest Ananias has uh, them uh, strike Paul because of his reaction uh, to and his claim of innocence. It doesn't make any sense why this would be upsetting. Um, but when he does, uh, Paul reacts. And as we can see, it's not because he doesn't respect the authority. Uh, he has his own explanation. Uh, verse 4, those who were standing near Paul, after he says calls him a whitewashed wall and and why would you be willing to do something that the law condemns, uh, striking an innocent man? Verse 4, those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Somehow or another, Paul didn't know who Ananias was. Uh, maybe he was in a crowd. Maybe he didn't recognize him. Um, maybe Paul had been gone so long he had forgotten. It's not like he could see the videos every day on Twitter or something. So for, for whatever the reason, he was not aware of that. And, and Paul would not have spoken so disrespectfully to his leader, uh, to the high priest. Had he known that, that's what he says. It's interesting that uh, this reminds me of a story uh, of Jesus when he was arrested uh, in John 18 and how uh, Jesus interacts uh, with the, the authorities, the Roman governor Pilate, for example, um, but also um, with the high priest. And Jesus challenges them knowing full well who they are. Uh, he still uh, challenges them. And, of course, uh, he is going to do that uh, respectfully but firmly and, and challenges the high priest in John 18, uh, beginning at verse 19, because they're at a kangaroo court just like Paul was at. And if it were not for the Romans here in Paul's situation, the Jews would have killed him just as they did uh, Stephen and just as they did Jesus. Ultimately, as you know, the Jews will reject uh, Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, and they will turn him over to Pilate, and Pilate, out of weakness, will uh, convict him and sentence him to death by crucifixion. And here Paul is in a fix now. He has said something that he shouldn't have said and wouldn't have said had he known the whole situation. Um, and so they say, how dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul says, look, I didn't know that's who it was, verse 5, because I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have done that, wouldn't have spoken evil of a ruler of your people. And so verse 6, Paul's going to figure out a diversion so that he can kind of take at least half of the group's mind off of what he just did. Uh, then Paul, verse 6, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, one of the big differences, probably the big difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two sects of the Jews, is the resurrection. The Pharisees believe very strongly that there will be a resurrection, the Sadducees not so much. 
Paul in other places would call himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. And we're familiar with how much trouble Jesus had with the Pharisees. Saul of Tarsus himself uh, was one of those. But then he converted to Christ after seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus. And now he is a Christian and a missionary and a, a leader of God's people writing letters to the churches, including some that the church would realize came through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is, sees what's going on, and he sees who's in the crowd, and he realizes that this is an opportunity for him to turn their focus off of condemning him and turn their focus onto a discussion that they have been having for a long, long time. Uh, I am here today, he says, because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Verse 7, when he said this, a dispute broke out, surprise, surprise, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And of course, Luke, not, know, not knowing whether there may be some who hear these words and read his letter, uh, the book of Acts, uh, unfamiliar with the, the Jewish people, he explains it in verse 8. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. Remember when Jesus was being asked question after question after question around Matthew 22 and 23 and some of that, those passages? And uh, the Pharisees ask him questions about the law. The Sadducees come and they ask him this crazy, weird question about the resurrection. And that's when they have this, uh, this, this crazy uh, notion that they, they say, well, we're going we're gonna to do a what-if situation here on you. Suppose a man marries a woman, and, uh, and he dies. And she, according to the tradition of the Jews, is to marry his next brother in line so that the first child can be in the name of the one who was deceased. And then he dies as well. And there are seven brothers in all, and they all die. And then finally the woman dies. And so the Sadducees, I think with a smirk, look to Jesus and they say, well, then in the resurrection, if there is a resurrection, whose wife will she be? And they think they, it's one of those gotcha questions, kind of like our media likes to do today, uh, interviewing people and trying to look for that gotcha moment that somebody can put on Twitter and have no idea what the context of the statement is. So that's what they're going to do uh, to Jesus. But Jesus responds and tells them, look, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. It's an amazing, incredible statement to them. And then he, but he addresses their question. He says, look, in heaven, people aren't married or given in marriage. That's not, they're like the angels. There's, there's no husbands, wives in, in heaven. Uh, but he says about the resurrection, there is a resurrection because scripture says, Jesus quotes the Bible again, just like he does in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 during the temptations. He quotes the Old Testament, quotes the book of Genesis and Exodus, where God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus says to the Sadducees, look, he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. So if he's, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, long after they have, they have passed from this life, then that means that those men are still alive. And that means that there is a resurrection. So it's a great, a great statement. He answers their question. Here, Paul is not really interested in uh, getting into a big discussion on whether there's a resurrection or not. What Paul is interested in is saving his life. And so he says, brothers, I am here before you on trial because of my hope in the resurrection. And then the Sadducees and the Pharisees are going to start 
turning on each other rather than on Paul, or at least that's what he hopes. Verse 9, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, or scribes, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. He's one of us. He's on our side. We like him. We like him because he agrees with us about the resurrection. Uh, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Which is kind of true. I mean, Jesus, the, the resurrected Lord, uh, already ascended into heaven, spoke to him and appeared to him. Um, but the Pharisees are thinking, look, this guy's not so bad after all. He agrees with us on this big, big question of the resurrection, so I, th I think we can cut him some slack. Well, the Sadducees didn't want to do that. Now they hated him even more. Verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bringing in, him into the barracks. And so you have this crowd, this mob, and they're all shouting for Paul's blood. And then he says, look, I'm here because I believe in the resurrection. And now half of them are pulling on, tugging on Paul to try to save his life. And the other half are pulling and tugging on Paul to try to get him arrested and, and condemned and killed. And, and it looks like he's about to be ripped in two. I mean, that's literally how Luke describes the scene. And remember, Paul had been in places like this before in the pagan theater in Ephesus. There was a big riot going on and and it was, a, it was a bad, bad scene in other places where Paul had been. Um, and so now the commander is going to have to act or he's going to have to explain to his superiors why this Roman citizen Paul was killed and was not protected by the authorities. Uh, so they have him, they take him by force, they rescue him from his own people. Um, Paul is going to rely on these pagan Romans, soldiers and authorities, uh, all the way up to the emperor himself in Rome uh, to save his life because his people want him dead. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Rome, so you must, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. Boy, did verse 11 ever come at a big, big moment for Paul. He sure needed that. He was nearly ripped in half. Uh, he was nearly killed by his own people. He's still not sure if the commander is going to turn him loose over to them or not. Um, but he has told his story in chapter 22, and the Jews hate him for it. And now he has um, commissioned him, himself in the presence of the commander to try to, hey, you, I'm a Roman citizen here, dude. You need to watch out for me. You need to keep me alive is what you need to do. Um, and so they have this great, great discussion. If you're, you have questions about the resurrection and how important and key it is, read 1 Corinthians 15 again, that great resurrection chapter. Uh, he begins, Paul does, by stating the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection, and appearances of Christ. Uh, he died on the cross. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And people saw him and can attest to that, including Paul himself. And in chapter 15, he names off some of those witnesses that Jesus appeared to, including James, the brother of the Lord, and Paul himself. Uh, and then he talks about how important the resurrection is, how core it is. Uh, Sean McDowell and others have said, as they talk about apologetics and, and give good, credible reasons to believe in the resurrection, and specifically the resurrection of Christ, 
Uh, I agree with them when they say the, the gospel stands or falls on the resurrection. Uh, if someone can disprove that Jesus was never raised from the dead, then what are we doing here? That's what Paul says, literally, in 1 Corinthians 15. Some value here in this life, if it can help you live a better life, help you be kinder, help you to love your neighbor, all of that's fine. But there are a lot of other social groups that, that say we should do that. What separates the church, what separates the Bible, what separates Christianity is the fact that Christianity says, look, we'll live forever. These bodies, yeah, they're going to decay and they're going to pass, but they will be raised from the dead and we'll be transformed and we will uh, live together with the Lord and the saved for eternity. Now that's unique. That's different. And it's all based on the fact that the tomb was found empty and remains empty to this day. Um, Paul, in the midst of this heated moment and discussion where he is nearly ripped apart. Uh, here's this word of encouragement from Jesus. Look, hang in there with me, Paul. You're, you're testifying in uh, Jerusalem, and you're going to do the same thing, not just in the capital for the Jews, but the capital of the Roman Empire. Um, in chapter 18 of Acts, when he was in Corinth, and in the midst of all of that idolatry and sexual immorality and and the difficulties that ultimately the church at Corinth would have even after it had been established for a while and the divisiveness that they were feeling. Um, Jesus appears and, and has, Paul has a vision and Jesus says, look, hang in there with me here. I've got lots of people here. I need you to keep, keep at it, keep at it. And he does, um, and he does. And then, uh, of course, in Acts chapter 9, when he is converted, Ananias tells him, look, you're going to, you're going to suffer a lot, man, and you're going to be God's messenger for people, and it's not going to go well for you. Um, and then later on in Acts 27, I can't wait to get to that chapter because it's such an exciting chapter about the ship uh, that Paul gets on, and then the shipwreck, and the storm, and the, the island, and all of these things as Paul is trying to appeal to Caesar and travel all the way to Rome. Um, and that's such an exciting story. But in the midst of that, when all seems lost on that ship, um, Paul has a vision. And he tells them about it. And he tells them, look, we're going to be okay. We've got to stay with the ship. Don't jump. Don't leave. Don't get on a lifeboat. Don't jump in the water until it's time. But, but the Lord has revealed to me that we're going to lose a lot of stuff, but we're not going to lose any person. All the lives have been spared. Um, and so this one comes at a moment like that, when Paul really needs to hear a message from the Lord. And I believe the Lord does that still. Not in some spooky, crazy, visionary way. And if some people say that they've experienced that and it helps them and it doesn't contradict Scripture and it allows them to be closer to God and, and more faithful to what God has called them to be, then I'm glad for them. That's great. I can't prove or disprove what, what they saw. I just can't. But what I can do is take them back to Scripture and say, okay, whatever happens, we are to live according to God's Word, and we are to be faithful to that. And I think God sends people our way. He helps us to read things just when we need to read them or encounter somebody just when we need to encounter them, see a beautiful sunset right when we need it. Those sorts of things, I think, God still brings encouragement, just like he did to Paul uh, here in Acts 23, verse 11. Well, as you probably saw, the, may have seen the title of this lesson is an assassination plot. 
now we get to read about that. It's not just that they're going to uh, try to kill him. They're actually going to plan this out in a first-degree murder assassination kind of way uh, to take Paul's life. We read about that plot, and we read about how Paul was saved um, in, in most of the rest of Acts chapter 23. We'll start in verse 12, and it's really exciting narrative. I know you'll like it. Uh, Acts 23, verse 12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. That's how much they wanted him dead. That's how serious they were about taking Paul's life. Um, more than 40 men, verse 13, were involved in this plot. That is plenty enough to take his life. And they've got a plan. They went to the chief priests and the elders <clears throat> and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. It's just, um, it saddens me to see these men who were the leaders of the Jewish people of the day, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. They were elders. They were priests. They were, they were this group. Um, and yet they don't see anything wrong with looking at these 40 men and saying, way to go. That's so great. That's such good news. Absolutely. We'll send word to the commander. Uh, any more than the same ones, many of the same ones, not all, but many of the same ones. It's been uh, 20, almost 30 years, perhaps 25 or 30 years since Jesus was killed, but he was killed in much the same way. Judas Iscariot going to the Jewish leaders and selling his friend, his master, out for 30 pieces of silver and them loving it, loving it so much that they stirred up the crowd to call for Jesus to be convicted and crucified, and a murderer uh, freed by Governor Pilate during the Passover celebrations in his stead. It's just amazing that they don't see this, um, this, this inconsistency. Um, but those were the leaders of, of, the, of Jesus' day, and we have to be careful in our own day because we get accustomed to things the way we like it, and we get accustomed to power and authority, and we don't want to let it go. Um, and that's exactly what's going on here. They see Paul as a real threat to their power and to their authority and to their reach into the people. And so they'll do whatever it takes uh, to uh, handle this threat, even if it means acting immorally and uh, not holding life sacred and not trusting in the Lord God, but rather trusting in physical means, even sinful means, to violently take someone's innocent life. That's what's going on here. That's what they're planning. These 40 men, they're fasting. They're not going to eat or drink until they do this. They go to the religious leaders of the Jews, and they say, here, here we've got a plan, and we can, we can do this if you'll help us. Just petition the, the commander that you, you need Paul, and while he's en route, We'll take care of this. But it doesn't work. Why? Because of this young man who is related to Paul. 
verse 16 of Acts 23. But when the son of Paul's sister, so Paul's nephew, heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and he told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions, one of the officers, and said, take this young man to the commander, the guy in charge. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. You can see how, how, um, how, how, how covert this is. I mean, they can't let the Jewish leaders or anybody else know what this boy knows and that he knows it or else his life would be in danger, and certainly they would keep him from getting to the commander. Um, but God preserves him, and God protects him. And uh, the centurion sends to the commander and says, look, this boy has something to tell you. Verse 19, the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, what is it you want to tell me? This is such a great scene. You can see this, this very important Roman official, commander, Command centurions and soldiers, and we're going to see how many in just a minute. And, um, and, and he takes this boy, and I don't know how old he is, but he takes this boy and he kind of takes him aside, a way where not everybody can hear. And he says, so, so you've got something to tell me, do you? What, what is it? What is it? So exciting. Verse 20, Paul's nephew said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. So he tells the commander, now what will the commander do? And remember, Paul has already told him that he is a Roman citizen by birth. And I think that helps him. Verse 22, the commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. You don't tell anyone what you've just told me. And you certainly don't tell anyone that you have told me. But he's going to take care of it. And it's amazing what he does. <clears throat> Acts 23, verse 23. Then he called two of his centurions, the commander did, and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at night, at nine tonight, provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Remember, Paul has been to Caesarea before, and in Caesarea there is kind of the headquarters of uh, the Roman occupation there at the time. And so the Roman governor... Uh, Felix is, is there in Caesarea, um, and the commander here answers to the governor, and so he's sending Paul to the governor uh, so that he can have his hearing there rather than in Jerusalem where his life is at stake. But he knows what this boy has told him. He's told him, look, there's 40 men who have said, we're not going to eat or drink until we take this man's life, and they're planning on it, and here's their plan. Don't let them do it. And so what does he do? He gets 200 soldiers, 70 cavalrymen, and 200 spearmen to accompany Paul. He's taking this very seriously, very seriously. I mean, he'd already seen them nearly kill him just trying to argue about the resurrection. And so he knows that they could do it, and he knows that they will do it unless he acts. And so he acts, and believe me, there's not going to be any way that those 40 men are going to take on this kind of a squad. It's pretty amazing. 
And so he provided horses for Paul to go along with this huge group so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix in Caesarea from Jerusalem. And verse 25, he wrote a letter as follows. The governor is, is sending Paul, but he's sending him with this letter. He obviously want, wants uh, Felix to know what's going on. To his ex, Claudius Lysias, who is, this is again the Roman form of letter writing in the first century. You identify yourself first, not at the end like we do. And then you identify your recipients or recipient. And then you do the body of the letter. Um, <clears throat> Claudius Lysias, verse 26, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Okay, so he's not giving him the whole story, but good enough. Good enough. Verse 28, I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. True, he was talking about whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. He was talking about whether he fulfilled prophecy or not. He was talking about whether there's a resurrection or not. And that's what really split the group. Up until that time, they were all united against Paul. But when Paul said that, then he split them up, and now it was uh, they were on each other, and so the commander had to step in and save Paul's life, and now he hears of this plot. Um, he says that he's innocent. As far as the Romans are concerned, he can find no charge against him that deserves death or imprisonment. Verse 30, when I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the commander has really got it together here. He's not just releasing Paul. He's not just saying, run for your life. Um, and he's not just sending him to, to Caesarea and saying, look, you need to make sure that this guy uh, gets through okay. He's, he still wants him to have a hearing. He still realizes that the Jews have something really against him, so much so that they, they are trying to get him killed. And so he sends him to the governor and he says, here's what I know. And now you can call on those who are his accusers. This man is a Roman citizen and he can have a fair trial. And if they make their case, then you decide. Uh, but if not, I haven't found him worthy of anything that deserves imprisonment. Um, verse 31, so the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Anti Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. So you have these 70 cavalrymen. They've already gotten this far with this very huge guard of 200 soldiers, the 70 cavalrymen and the 200 spearmen. Uh, but now they feel safe enough to where they can make it the rest of the way with just the 70 horsemen. Um, Verse 33, when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. So he gets there safely, which is more than would have happened had he stayed in Jerusalem and they would have just tried to move him across town. Now they're able to get him uh, to this very important city of Caesarea. Verse 34, the governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Uh, learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Not really so that he would escape, but really so that he could be safe um, under, under Roman guard. And, um, 
and he asks him, where are you from? Where are you from? And, it, and I'm not sure why he's doing that. It may be that he's kind of like Pilate was when he heard uh, that Jesus was from Galilee. He says, hey, wait, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Hang on a second. We, we got Herod here in town for the Passover. Let me send you over to him. Um, and I think that's kind of what uh, the governor here was trying to do as well. He probably looked at his, his uh, got his cell phone out, looked at his calendar and said, man, I am booked solid tomorrow. I can't do this. But he finally says, yeah, that's, I can't send you to, to, to uh, Cilicia. That's, that's too far. We, we can deal with that uh, here. And so that's, uh, that's what he says. That's what he says. So hooray for Paul's nephew, who bravely goes to the Roman authorities and says, look, there's something you guys need to know. Um, hooray for that guy. And hooray for this pagan Roman commander in Jerusalem who refuses to just let Paul loose and let things happen as they may, um, as we've seen some other Roman authorities at times. But again, it may very well be because Paul is a Roman citizen and, and he plays that card uh, to save his life. And he'll do that again in the next couple of chapters when he appeals to Caesar and finds himself on his way uh, to Rome. So hooray for Paul's nephew, hooray for this Roman pagan commander who has more uh, appreciation for justice than Paul's own people, his own Sanhedrin do. And, uh, and so he provides this letter to Governor Felix. And <clears throat> you're probably familiar to some extent with Acts 24 and 25 and 26, but We'll get to those uh, chapters over the next few lessons. Uh, he appears before Felix, and he doesn't go into great detail in his story like he did in chapter 22, or like he will before King Agrippa and the, the entourage that's there in chapter 26, but he does talk a little bit about it. And it's in Acts 24 that we'll see next time where uh, Paul is very forceful and very direct in talking to this Roman governor uh, about the faith and about righteousness and um, and about judgment and and the man is is affected by it uh, he he gets anxious about his own standing with with his creator uh, but as best we can tell he never responds and accepts uh, the Lord and the will of God in his life governor Felix and then we'll keep Paul around for a couple years and then a new governor will come in and that's when Paul finds himself uh, before uh, King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, along with um, the new governor who replaces Felix, Felix, a man by the name of Festus. Uh, probably was one of the things he did it before he got that really nice cushy job as uh, Matt Dillon's uh, deputy, <clears throat> Festus. Um, okay, so uh, what do we know about this chapter? What do we know about God from Acts chapter 23? I think what we know is that God looks after us but it's not always like how we expect that he would. Uh, who would have figured that Paul would be where he is, period? Who would have figured that he would have had to have turned to the Romans, the pagans, for safety over his own people? Um, who would have figured that it would be uh, God providing this, this young man to hear this story and to tell Paul and Paul to send him to the uh, centurion, the officer, and then the officer to send him to the commander and then the commander to act on it. Um, God provides in such great, great ways. We're in the midst of a very difficult time, physically, emotionally, even spiritually. And it's really taxing. And the longer it goes, the more taxing it gets. And in the midst of everything is this crazy polarizing election 
that's going to come up in just a few months. But you know what? Paul took Paul was taken care of. God took care of Paul, and he'll take care of us. And I want us to end this lesson with these words um, from what Jesus told Paul uh, while he was in Jerusalem, while, while things were going crazy. Uh, we're reminded that the Lord stood near Paul in Acts 23, verse 11, and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus tells us the same thing. He says, take courage. I, I've got plans for you. Uh, I've got things for you to do. I've got things for you to do. So I'll be with you. Take courage. I hope that you will find courage in the Lord today and that you have a great weekend and that you worship the Lord with his people as best you can and, um, and that I get to see you um, next Tuesday afternoon as we look at Acts chapter 24. God's blessing. And happy birthday, LMA. I love you.